0: Romans chapter 16 <coughs> I commend unto you Phoebe <coughs> sorry I commend unto you Phoebe our sister who is a servant of the church that is that can create that you receive her in the Lord worthy of the saints and that ye assist her in whatsoever matter she may have need of you for see she herself also hath been a succor of many and of mine own self Salute Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. And salute the church that is in their house. Salute Eponitus, my beloved, who is the first fruits of Asia unto Christ. Salute Mary, who bestowed much labor on you. Salute Andronicus and Junius, my kinsman, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles, who also have been in Christ before me, salute Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord, salute Arbenus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved, salute Apelles, the approved in Christ, salute them which are of the household of Aristobulus. Salute Herodian, my kinsman, salute them of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Trophina and Trophosa, who labour in the Lord. Salute Persis the beloved, which laboured much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, the chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Salute Asa, Syncritus, Phlegian, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren. That are with them. Salute Philodulus, Julia, Neresis, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints that are with them. Salute one another with the holy kiss, all the churches of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which are causing the divisions and occasions of stumbling, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and turn away from them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Christ, but their own belly, and by their smooth and fair speech they beguile the hearts of the innocent. For your obedience (coughs) is come abroad unto all men. I rejoice therefore over you, but I would have you wise unto that which is good, and simple unto that which is evil, and the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, Saluteth you. And Lucius and Jason and Sarsipater, my kinsmen, I, Tertius, who write the epistle, salute you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and of the whole church, saluted you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, saluted you. And Quartus, the brother. Now to him that is able to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept in silence through times eternal, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, is made known unto all the nations unto obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. The Lord bless the reading of His word to us. I don't know how many times you've read the first the last chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. <coughs> I don't know when was the last time you read it and articulated syllable by syllable all the names in these lists. I may not have done it perfectly tonight, but I did it quite deliberately. <coughs> I've—I must say—many times just run my name o- my eye over them in reading this chapter. This is, of course, as we've seen, the, one of the most powerful pieces of of um, holy scripture writing that the, the Holy Spirit gave to the Apostle Paul. Profound uh, doctrine of the of the Gospel of Christ through it, in many uh, important respects, was given to him. Why then did I read the whole chapter, every word, including all the names? Because at the end of the day, it's all about people. And um, the people that Paul was writing about here were each individuals for whom he had a deep love in the Lord. He had been ministering to them in the in the earlier part of this epistle, uh, as I say, profound things, things which they would have heard, read, Once, I said before, I often wonder how these epistles got to the saints. Were they read over once to begin with? And how were they made available to them for study? We don't know. Uh, We just put things into a a photocopy or whatever. And we've all got as many Bibles in our homes as we need. With all the text is there. I often wonder how the disciples in the Church of God in Rome were helped to absorb the depth and range of teaching, Christian, um, doctrinal teaching that's in this epistle. But I'm sure the, uh, the elders in the church had their own way of doing that. But when Paul came to, to the end of the chapter, and of course, as you probably know, some commentators believe that his, his letter, really, letter really ends at the end of chapter 15, and that this is something he may have written somewhere else that's got tacked on. But I think the best <coughs> commentators I've read um, say no, uh, this is all part of a, a whole and Paul deliberately uh, takes the space and time to give us by name this list of 24 people, six of whom are, are women. And um, I think it's worth pausing at the end of our uh, deliberations on this powerful doctrinal epistle to recognise this not only the list of names but he opens the thing with I commend to you Phoebe our sister who was a servant of the church in Cancria one thing that seems to be common in most commentators on the Romans is that this was in all probability the sister Phoebe to whom was entrusted the carrying of this letter from Paul to the church in Rome it's a pretty common assumption uh, in commentaries that this was a rogue she had and that in commending her to them he was commending her as a carrier of the letter now as with many of the other names we'll just look at one or two of them in a moment we haven't time to analyse them all but as with some of the other names these names you know conjure up all sorts of questions don't they in our imagination and mine anyway who was Phoebe was she a single lady why was she going from Corinth? which was where Paul was when he wrote this epistle, in the year 58, why was she going from Corinth to Rome, she must have been doing if she was going to be the, pair of the bearer of the epistle? What was her business in doing that? We wonder these things, um, and of course we have no immediate answer to them, but there's still our imaginations, and he goes on to uh, speak of her, her worthiness, to commend her very highly, Um, a sister in whatsoever matter she may have need of you I wonder if she was going back to Rome to some problems that are not the disclosed to us in scripture family or church problems and he's appealing to them to be helpful to her here Uh, for she herself (coughs) has been a succor of many of my own self this is a helpful person he's saying to them now you be helpful to her in whatever way she needs you so I say a single name and a word or two like that just stir in their minds all sorts of imagination more so when we come to Priscilla and Aquila of course To <coughs> salute Priscilla and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ from my life laid down their own necks and to whom not only I give thanks but also all the churches of the Gentiles now we could spend a useful half hour discussing all the scriptures teaches about Priscilla and Aquila I think five or six times their names are mentioned in different places And uh, the place that always comes particularly to my mind is where we are told that one day in Ephesus, she was in Rome and she was in Ephesus and she was all over the place, Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla and her husband Aquila, incidentally, notice that in nearly all the instances where they're mentioned, the woman's name comes first, Priscilla and Aquila. Why? Interesting. Um, Some have speculated she was a, a woman of high Roman birth, who perhaps, as some people would say, married beneath her and they had a tent-making business. Um, devoted people. There's nothing but what is admirable spoken about these two people uh, in the New Testament. we can spent a lot of time this. They say that they're repeatedly mentioned. And the one that comes to most of our minds, certainly to mind first, was a day when they were in Ephesus and a very able man turned up where he came from, we don't know. His name was Apollos, and he was a very gifted preacher and teacher. And these two people listened to him, and they appreciated this, and thank God for him. But can you just imagine them saying to one another afterwards, That was a fine address from Apollos, wasn't it? But he's not quite right on this or that. He really needs somebody to put him right. And the one says to the other, about we're not very much in a position to do that, are we? I see these two people going home and on their knees before the Lord, asking for his guidance as to how they could have the wisdom, the humility and the grace to speak to this great man. Would he rebuff them? Or, or would he listen to them? And I believe they got the answer from the Lord. All oh right, you see, this is imagination, but these people do stir their imagination, don't they? They came to to a pause and they approached them. Perhaps they asked them to their home for a meal and said how much they appreciated his preaching and said, but there was a point you raised about so-and-so. Can you imagine just how gently they would try to get to it? And then I'm sure they would be immensely thankful to realise that this man was very willing, as I think the scriptures would (coughs) indicate, because he must have been very willing to listen to them. And they taught him the way of God more perfectly. Um, Paul knew about this. I'm sure he knew these people well, obviously, and he's just commending, he's commending them to the church in Rome, sending greetings and so on. And so he goes on, and we have the list of people—twenty-four names mentioned. I say, six of them women. There's one comment I read a long time ago, who tried to go into each one of these names and conjure up a story about them some of it was fanciful but one that wasn't so fanciful was a reference to in verse 13 salute Rufus the chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine we remember of course that uh, we read in the scriptures about a man from Cyrene called Simon and the scriptures tell us that he was the father of Rufus and Alexander and we read elsewhere of Alexander and the suggestion has often been made that um, this was the Rufus, who is the son of Simon. If so, that conjures in our minds a, a, a vision, doesn't it, of so this man coming perhaps to Jerusalem, especially to keep the Passover. Uh <coughs> a devout Jew, and perhaps he's never been to to Jerusalem before for Passover time. And as he approaches the city, can you imagine it? he always says not another of these ghastly crucifixion processions. Who are the three poor souls who are going out this time? And while he's looking at this painfully, a Roman soldier's hand on his shoulder, you just look the right man, you're a strong fellow, come on, we need your help, what for? You see one of these fellows, he's, he's, he's collapsed under his cross, you lift it, me? Yes, You want you to carry it. Perhaps Simon was a bit lifted at this, why me? Why should I be humiliated carrying a cross? We don't know. It was Rufus and Alexander and the mother of the people that Paul was writing to here? Was it possible, I mean it was highly possible, that Simon or Cyrene took that cross to Calvary and never forgot it and came under the tremendous spell of the man of Calvary and perhaps Rufus was his son and Alexander whom we read of elsewhere and this was his mother. And um, I don't think it's too fanciful, we can't confirm it of course, to think that this is who Paul was writing to. Some of the other names have stories attached to them by some people which we won't attempt to go into because it's all speculative. But they're very interesting to think of. The point was really in my mind, Paul was concerned to name and put down on the page of Holy Scripture, whether he realized it at that time this is what we would regard with all the other scriptures as the divine inspired word of God. Put down all these names carefully, spelt according to the correct way, just a word about some of them, uh, just giving us a little bit of a clue who they might have been and what they might have done and so on. I say, coming to the end of such a powerfully doctrinal and theological uh, treatise, it's very touching to think that he was concerned at the end of the day to remind himself and them that the whole thing at the end of the day was about people. These were people who had come to know the same Lord and Master that he, Saul of Tarsus, now Paul the Apostle, had come to know through simple faith. There were his brothers and sisters in Christ, in the Church in Rome. Never been there. Some of them he may have known. Some of them he had never seen, perhaps, perhaps all of them, um, most of them he did see when he finally did get to Rome. We don't know. But I think it's very uh, important to just pause and recognise uh, what the Apostle had in mind when he gave us all these names and uh, give us just a detail about them and um, send salutation from them, uh, to from them and to them and so on. and. Um, this is how he's winding up his epistle. Now it seems almost as though um, after he's done all that uh, he'd come to the end of the epistle. But let imagine Paul writing all this and then having a further thought. In verse 17 he said, Now I beseech your brethren to mark them which are causing the divisions and occasions of stumbling. He must have been concerned, he doesn't say much about this earlier in the epistle, perhaps he set out not to be, not to be a corrective epistle, I've been thinking with Steve and his talk to us about the Philippians, how there was an element, a corrective element about human behaviour associated somewhere in the Philippian epistle, perhaps Paul hadn't intended to do that, but as he comes to the end of the epistle, this comes into his mind and he's concerned about it. And he said, I beseech you, mark them which are causing divisions and occasions of stumbling, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and turn away from them. What doctrine? All all that profound teaching about justification by faith. The wonderful teaching of chapter 8 of the Romans about the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, All the other teaching about um, Christian discipleship, including the, the main text about believers baptism that very important matter in the Christian life which you have in Romans 6 and uh, his uh, adventure as it were for three chapters into the profundity of the purpose of God as it's called the purpose of God according to election (coughs) and yet he's concerned finally about some elements which he seemed to recognise I've heard about he hadn't been there as people who were causing divisions and occasion of stumbling uh, contrary to the doctrine which you learned. He had been teaching them doctrine, profound doctrine, but there were people there not willing to receive it. And he had been getting the message about this, I think, and he was issuing a final warning for them. For they are such that serve not our Lord Christ, but their own belly, and by their smooth and fair speech, they beguile the hearts of the innocent. And then he gives us that remarkable word. He said, I would have you to be wise to that which is good and simple to that which is evil. I've often thought of these words and just what the apostle meant by this. To be wise to that which is good and to be simple to that which is evil. Um, There's something in this which is quite profound. about being wise to that which is good. I think he was simply praying for them, that they would be, have the wisdom from God to recognise all the good things he had been teaching them about. Perhaps his mind went back there, as I'm sure yours doesn't mine, to the closing verses of Romans 11. All the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, our unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past tracing out. Be wise, he said, to that which is good and simple to that which is evil because as he's just remarked there were those who were causing division about them Be, uh, don't get into complicated arguments with me said stick with the simplicity of the truth of the great gospel I've been expanding to you I was struck in looking again at this last chapter how the degree to which this comes very much alongside what you were saying to us in Lord's este- Lord this Eve about the, the Gospel as it's profoundly taught in the Epistle of the Philippians, um, pointed out as Paul does in various ways in this epistle that it's about personal salvation through simple faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we begin to learn that the Gospel is a many splendid thing, a many splendid thing indeed vast in its scope as it touches our lives and our behaviour and our attitude to one another and, to, and whole sections of the epistle to the Romans teaching about our attitudes to one another, about our attitude and worship to God, whole sections of the epistle and this is, as we've been thinking the gospel, the great good news of God beginning with our personal salvation surely but extending us into the deep things of God as Paul has expounded some of them (coughs) you know I was reflecting um, on this and just realised yesterday that today 22nd of September 2015 is the day of Yom Kippur I'm sure you know what Yom Kippur is it's the Jewish Day of Atonement that's today The last of 10 days of celebration, starting with the Jewish New Year and concluding on with the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Um, and I was thinking of the, the religious Jews up and down this land and other lands today, celebrating as it would be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, what would they be doing, how would they be celebrating it? Well. They celebrate it. I've read about this before in other places. They celebrate it by humbling themselves before God, asking Him to show them their faults and their sins, and seeking God's forgiveness. That—that uh, that, that is the heart, I believe. So I'm told of the celebrations, very solemn celebration of the devout Jew this very day, Yom Kippur. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with it in itself. The tragedy, of course, is they can recognize their sins. They can have them revealed to them. They can seek to cleanse their conscience by repentance. But the tragedy, the colossal tragedy, is they have no Saviour. They have no means of bowing their hearts, and they won't bow their hearts to the one who put away sin <coughs> by the sacrifice of Himself. You know one of the very striking passages and it's very moving in the epistle to the romans is the opening verses of chapter nine where paul says he said i, I could wish myself to be accursed for my fellow jews say, my brethren um because he recognized the depth of the tragedy of jewish unbelief in the person of the lord jesus christ and before he went into the Deep teaching on on election and, and God's choice of Israel and, and and all about his setting them aside and, and choosing ourselves for uh, <coughs> for the day of grace and so on. He did it with a very heavy heart, as he shows in the opening verses of chapter nine. He was it's all that's a heartbreaking situation. So comes across so genuine and real too. He was deeply, deeply saddened at the unbelief of his own nation and um, <coughs> they say this very day which we sit here the devout Jew throughout the world is prostrating himself before God uh, asking him to for reveal his, their sins and to forgive them but they miss the mark and Paul, it's so tragic to think of it isn't it it was tragic to Paul, and he really was upset about it. He went on to expound what the Holy Spirit had given to him to expound and to teach him about. It. But um, it uh, was something that really, really um, hurt him very much indeed. And uh, he shows, it, as I say, in um, the opening verses of chapter nine. Now he concludes the chapter, the final chapter of his epistle here, uh, at least it looks like a conclusion in <laughs> verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and then he goes on again, it almost seems to me as it can't be finished, here. He's, he's giving us almost farewells on every few verses, but he keeps coming back, and then he mentions Timothy, my fellow worker, and a few more names. Um, who he calls my kinsmen. This chapter shows how deeply Paul appreciated the persons of um, those, the Christians he worked with. He's not an utterly outstanding man himself. We know about uh, no doubt about that. And those people he worked with, and whom he names in this chapter, a oh, whole crowd of them, must have looked up to him with great, a rever- reverence almost certainly with great admiration and acknowledgement of the work of God and this a great apostle who had uh, sent them this epistle uh, but as he writes of them doesn't it come across how deeply he appreciated them and their fellowship uh, with him in the gospel verse 25 he is getting finished now at the last now to him that is able to establish you according to my gospel here we are again Steve <laughs> the gospel as Paul saw it my gospel. This is one presentation of it in Romans. Some of the deepest um, doctrinal theological issues of the gospel he's been dealing with, and he calls it at the end here, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept in silence through times eternal. This takes our minds back to Ephesians, doesn't it? The old passage in Ephesians which reminds us that the truth of the gospel, the great New Testament truth of, of the new covenant had been kept in God's counsels for all these years and centuries and now with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ time has come to reveal this and to give us a new covenant and we were thinking in Lord's Day morning, the new covenant in his blood and um, this is where Paul gets to hear the mystery which had been Kept in silence, he says, through times eternal, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, is made known unto all men and to the obedience of faith. Um, He's finally got to the end of his epistle as the the apostle here, and it's it's very um, touching and powerful the way he draws his epistle to a close with this final great doxology about the gospel the greatness, the glory, the power, the extent the, the, the majesty of the gospel which has been given and which has been revealed to us after all these many years we just leave Paul's epistle here for a reflection uh, I've only touched on it in one or two uh, aspects over a few talks but at the end here we're left with a a sense of a a great sense of completeness of the message that Paul (coughs) had been given to um, to minister to the saints in Rome and to us we knew he hadn't been there, we knew he was going there and did get there as a prisoner as it happened and whether he ever got to Spain, we don't know. But he had here, in the end, a lot of Christian love and affection to share with all these named people. Uh, it was a, just reading through the names again that struck me again. It's it's profound teaching, but it's all about people, and they were people who were in his heart. And um, there's a lot of teaching commended to us. Of course, th- it's directly so one part as we saw of the epistle that we should um, our relationships with one another should be good and loving and so on but it comes through here just the way the apostle presents himself in his final message to the Romans so we just leave it for the Lord's uh, blessing on our consideration of this monumental um, treatise which it was and um, we come back to it and we reflect on things we've seen as we read it from time to time, and compare it, as I say, with the Paul's other epistles which are studying uh, on the Lord's the Morning.